Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. I'm your host, Matt DeVivo. This show is produced by Ben Murray. On today's episode, we spoke with Jason Bresler. Jason served as a Marine Corps engineer officer after graduating from the U.S. Naval Academy at Annapolis. He is a veteran of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. After five years in the Marines, Jason transitioned to the reserves and went on to fulfill his lifelong dream of becoming a New York City firefighter, continuing a family tradition of firefighting from his father and his grandfather. He has concurrently served in the FDMY and the Marine Corps Reserve for the past 15 years. Using lessons he learned from both the military and the fire service, he founded an organization called Leadership Under Fire, which trains individuals and organizations to operate in high-intensity settings where much is on the line. Another disclaimer for today's show, and perhaps some of our zoomed out listeners can relate, is that we had some construction going on in the background during today's virtual studio, as I say in air quotes. I apologize, man. I, I'm, I'm absolutely certain these guys told me on Wednesday that they were, um, they were finished making noise. For... Amidst the bonus sound effects, we hope you enjoy our conversation. Thanks for listening. Cool, then we're live. Sounds good, bro. Yeah, where are you joining us from? You're not in the city, right? Yeah, I technically, I mean, I'm in the Bronx. So I'm oh, yeah? I'm not Manhattan proper, but I live I live in the Bronx. Cool, I didn't know that. I know a lot of dudes like uh, commute in for the job. They like living in, I guess they don't, they like living outside the city, having a home, having some extra space, that kind of thing. Yeah, there's a, there's a friend of my guys that live in the five boroughs. Across, of course, a lot of guys live uh, on Staten Island. Yeah. Um, some guys live, live up in the neighborhood I live in, uh, in the yeah. Bronx. You know, a few guys live in Manhattan. There aren't too many, too many farmers live in Manhattan, but there's a, there's a few. Well, a lot of guys live, you know, out on Long Island and way upstate. But Yeah, the young guys probably come live in the city and just like, two and three up in an apartment so they can party not this year but uh probably yeah, normal, well, right yeah i mean well the interesting thing is like right now if you want to live in manhattan there, there's deals there's deals to uh to be had so yeah uh, i guess so. i've heard of i've heard of folks who had you know paying 2600 a month for a one bedroom and they went they they informed their landlord they, they didn't want to renew their lease and the landlord said how about if you uh how about if i gave it to you for a thousand dollars a month Jesus. Really? Yeah. There's all kinds of, I mean, there's just, you know, supply and demand. There's, there's so much yeah. supply right now and demand is uh, probably at a, not necessarily an all time low, but certainly a, a, a low in recent history. Yeah. I got to renegotiate. I think you got a lot of leverage right now. Yeah. Are you a native New Yorker? Uh, I'm not. I grew up in, no. um, in Baltimore or, you know, in kind of like the suburbs. And my, my father was a firefighter, uh, firefighter in chief there. That's pretty you know, common. It runs in the family, right? You know, my family, it's three, three generations, certainly common. A lot of guys I worked with, uh, I work with on the job or second, occasionally third generation. So you remember like being involved in the community and the firefighting and did you want to do it from like a pretty young age since you're, you know, your father was like a career firefighter if he's a chief, right? Yeah, my grandfather too. I remember, you know, visiting both of them at work as a young kid, and it's like it's really all I ever wanted to uh, to do. 
you know, went through grammar school, of course, like get to high school and I like playing sports and I, I like school, you know, like I, I knew I was going to probably have the opportunity to go to college, which, which was, um, certainly kind of rare in my, in my, in my family. So, uh, I was looking around at like where I could go to school and then the, the military was appealing. So I'm like, well, maybe if I go to, if I go to college, I can do, uh, you know, maybe go to service Academy or do ROTC and um serve my time and then possibly uh transition into the into the fire department later and it's exactly what happened so you decide like hey i'm gonna go join the military do that and then come back and go in fire department did that and this is pre-9-11 too right yeah this is pre-9-11 so i graduated from the naval academy in 2000 my plan was to do my obligated time five years and then transition into the fdny of course that, you know, the time was somewhat of a, of a pipe dream because the FDNY only gives a test once every four or five years. And there's like tens of thousands of people that take the test. So there's a timing issue too. Yeah. And then of course, you know, I'm graduating from the Naval Academy and I tell my father and grandfather that I want to be a, a firefighter when my obligated time is up. And they both like just looked at each other and, you know, kind of shook their heads. Like, I mean, they, they became, they became firefighters because I mean, they, they grew to love the, the profession, but largely because, they needed a job with benefits that was going to provide for their, for their families. They, they certainly didn't have some of the opportunities that I, that I had, you know, one of them being to go to school full time. I mean, my, my grandfather didn't even finish, didn't even finish high school. You know, if, if the, they thought like, Oh, you know, if he leaves the military at some point, he'll go to business school or he'll go to law school or he'll, he'll go to medical school or, you know, do something like that. And then I, I'm here, I'm telling him that like, I can't, you know, I'm looking forward to doing my time. And then, transitioning, uh, into, into the fire department. And then of course, nine 11 happened within, you know, it happened the following year. And, um, I, I always say just even as an outsider, just, uh, you know, as a, at the time I was an active duty second Lieutenant. So now we're getting ready for a fight, not really knowing where or when outside of outside of Afghanistan. So just as an outsider, uh, just, just the way in which the FDNY not only responded that day, but, but just the, the character and, and resilience that they displayed, like the weeks, days, months following kind of left me wanting to be a, a, a part of that. And I, I then started to form some friendships with some of the guys on, on the job during my deployments. I'd correspond with these guys. I'd come back and hang out with them. And, you know, I'd, I'd visit their firehouses. And then uh, I think I took the test. They had to accelerate the, the test. So I, I think they gave a test in like December of, of O2. And I took the test, I think like maybe not even a, f- a full week before I left for Kuwait to support the invasion of, of Iraq. Yeah. And what's, what's interesting is like, here's a test that they're giving immediately following the death of like 343 guys and similar to military recruiting. Like when our nation's at war, recruiting is an all time high, yeah. um, which is completely counterintuitive. Like you would think that like, Oh, we're at war. Uh, guys are getting banged up. Like the recruiters would have a, a, a very difficult task in like affluent communities. And the, the research, the data shows that it actually goes the other way. Like the, the toughest years in Iraq, the toughest years in Afghanistan, re, the, the recruiting re- effort was a little bit less, uh, less involved than it is typically. So a lot of guys yeah. took the test and then was fortunate to have a high list number. And the same day that I asked out of the Marine Corps, I, I started with the, uh, the FDNY. It was like the, the timing was just perfect. Yeah. I think that, uh, that's one of the things that makes me love our country even more 
is that not to work in cliches, but it's like when the going gets tough, you know, recruiters after nine 11 didn't have to work so hard. And you're right. They, they got new recruits from all kinds of socioeconomic classes and, uh, probably looking a lot more diverse than the recruits pre nine 11. But I think that's, you know, if you're patriotic, like you want to do the, you want to do the hard stuff when it matters and, and you want to step up. So, and then even, even talking about post nine 11 for FDNY, I have no idea what the recruiting looked like or how, or how many people want to be a firefighter, or how many people are inspired by it. But you're talking about, yeah, a day when, you know, 343 people died. And then uh, what's the impact to recruiting there up, down, same. Yeah. You know, it was, it, it was, uh, very similar to the recruiting trend in the Marine Corps, or I mean, in the, in the larger military, like you would think after nine 11, like even some of the senior leadership was like, who, who, who's going to, who's going to possibly want this job, you know? And then, uh, I, I think more guys turned out and gals turned out than ever before to take yeah. the test. And it was a time when the city was navigating some, some budget challenges. And I believe they even cut, they, they cut like the starting pay to like 26 or $27,000. I mean, in New York and a record number of guys and gals took the, uh, took the test in, in spite of all of that, because they just wanted to be part of something really significant. So let's talk about, Naval Academy, pretty close by to where you grew up in Maryland, down in Annapolis. Yeah. And then track to getting there. When you, when you get there, you got to pick Navy or Marines or, or however that goes. And then picking whatever you want to do in the Marines. Yeah. So when I went to Annapolis in, in 96, my goal was to become a Marine officer. Aviation was pretty appealing to me. I like the idea mm-hmm. of flying helicopters. I got recruited to play baseball there and very quickly I looked around and only a small percentage of the officer cadre there hail from the Marine Corps in comparison to the Navy. And of course, now my sense was they kind of like, because the organization is smaller, they can maintain higher standards and just the orientation of the services is, is inherently different. One of the primary differences being that it's, it's a little bit more, physically demanding just because of the nature of, um, of what Marines do, particularly the infantry. So I, I looked around and I'm like, yeah, I, I, I think this, uh, further reinforces my desire to be uh, a Marine. And when you're there, there's just like this whole kind of mystique around what it is to be, uh, be a Marine. I mean, I, that's me. Like my, one of my roommates, my roommate, my sophomore through my senior year, he wanted to be a SEAL, right. And he, he found that equally appealing. And then that and alluring in that community is even arguably even more competitive. But uh, when I was there, I think it was like, it was limited to maybe 10 to 12%. There was a certain cap on how many Marines they, they could select. So my goal early on was to, was to commission as a Marine, specifically pursue Marine aviation. And then that plan kind of went out the window. My freshman year plead year, I was playing on the varsity baseball team. And I took a, uh, we we're doing a, a soft toss drill and I took a tennis ball to the, to the globe of my eye at a close range. Thank, thank God it wasn't a, uh, it wasn't a baseball. It would have been, it, it would have hurt a lot more. Like, uh, Tony Canigliaro. Yeah. But yeah. the thing about the tennis ball is exactly Canigliaro. The, yeah. the, the thing about the tennis ball is it fits perfectly in the globe of your eye. Yeah. So, um, they took me to, uh, like the local hospital, the doctor kind of like blew me off, shined a light in my eye, didn't dilate it and said, I, you're, you're good. And then by the following spring, I had started to lose. I didn't really notice until it was 
largely gone, but then I realized one day that my, my vision was, was gone in my right eye. And I, I kind of noticed in retrospect, I had noticed that I, my depth perception was, was eroding in the sense that I was dropping balls and swinging through stuff like stuff that I ordinarily wouldn't, wouldn't do. So they take me to Bethesda and they realize that my retina is entirely detached from my eye. So they had to reattach it. And it's, it's a miracle of sorts that I really got, that I got to stay because they said, well, there's really no purpose in you being here. If you can't, if you can't take a commission, but then I, I kind of fought to stay. And then I fortunately was able to still end up getting a commission in the Marine Corps, despite the fact that I'm largely monocular and I don't possess the perception and the division that I lost was in my dominant eye, which presented some challenges. It just makes me more, even more appreciative for the opportunities that I had in large part, because I was able to get a, uh, a, a waiver at the highest levels. How do you even reattach uh, retina? It's called um, go, like inside the eye and the yeah, eye. Yeah. It's called, it's called a scleral, it's called a scleral buckle. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I mean, this was like 96, it was like cutting edge surgery, but they go in, they put a silicon band, reattach it. You know, the, the eye is like one of the most complex organs. And they mm-hmm. said like the, the damage is it's like having bad film. Like you could put it back in the camera, but the, the film's no good. So I guess some vision was better, was better than none, but I never really, really gained. I never regained my, my depth perception and just figured out a way, you know, to adjust. It was really never an issue until I went to the Marine Corps and, you know, I just, I'm right-handed. I found that I was going to have to learn how to shoot left-handed because I couldn't really see the target. I was going to say even at long ranges, but even near ranges, I didn't have the visual acuity. So. And you had to give up baseball too, I assume. At a, you know, at a certain point, or just yeah, you know, it's you know, what's interesting is, uh, in an odd way, baseball is my ticket to allow me to stay. So, these are like world class ophthalmologists and eye, eye surgeons at Bethesda, <clears throat> and they said, like, we don't really know if, like, you know, the military is the best choice for you, you, you at this point. And they said, your days of playing baseball are definitely over. You should take up golf, you can play golf, you know, with monocular vision. So, I was my sophomore year, I was, I, I struggled with, you know, just to disappointment that I'm like, wow, I went from wanting to be a Marine Corps aviator to playing college baseball to one day being a, a firefighter and all of that is at risk. So I'm one, I'm home one, one like weekend with my father and kind of feeling sorry for myself. He's like, so you, you, you're packing it in for baseball. And I'm like, well, dad, what, what do you mean to tell you? Like I, I had this eye injury. The doctors are telling me, are, are telling me it's not a good idea that I, I shouldn't play. And He's like, he's like, you spent your whole, your whole life preparing for this. You're going to let some doctor tell you what, you know, what you can and can't do. So he's like, let's go have a catch. And we went across the street and, and I literally was like, yeah, my father was like you know, active part of my, my development in the sport and made a tremendous, you know, invested a ton of time and helped me get better as a kid, be able to play at that level. I just remember standing there trying to throw the ball like right through his face as we're having this, uh, this catch, but in some ways it just felt good to just be out there throwing the ball around. So I went back and I, I went to the coaching staff and I said, Hey, I'd like to give it a shot. And the coaches were a little apprehensive. So they said, you know what? All right. But you know, we got to play it safe. So they, they maybe wear one of those uh, stupid helmets that you have to wear at the batting cage when you're like 10 years old, <laughs> not only, face, not only yeah, wearing a cage. helmet, but like the entire face. Yeah. So yeah. I'm out there. Like I was a middle infielder and third baseman. So I'm out there, taking ground balls during batting practice, wearing a helmet on my head. 
with a face mask. Oh, not just a bat, but like yeah, like they wanted me. Oh, okay. They wanted me wearing the thing. It was, it was before short. they had like those wire cages that all the softball players wear because they're so close, right? It was uh, short lived, but you know your your reference to uh, to Canigliaro leads me to believe that you know you're you're a fan of the sport. So at the time, Chris okay. Sabo had probably retired, and they were still the rec specs that like James Worthy and those guys were were, were yeah. popular. Yeah. So I ended up wearing uh I ended up wearing like polycarbonate rec specs, but the coaches, they were supportive. And they said, you know what, you know, you got a strong arm. Why don't you pitch? So I ended up becoming a relief pitcher. I, I wasn't, I wasn't very good. I mean, I was good enough to contribute, but at that point I'm like, you know what, if I can play baseball at this level, then maybe I can make a case for a waiver, a medical waiver. And I said, you know what, if I can fortunate enough to get a commission in the Marine Corps, then I don't think the fire department's going to say you're not physically qualified. Yeah. So of course it's all pre nine eleven. I had no idea that it would play out that way, but it did. And in retrospect, like I have like I have a tremendous re- appreciation, respect for aviators, as I'm sure you you do. Like I, I mean, I think back to some of these missions, some of the places that they that they fl- flew us in the conditions in which they did it. But I, I'm uh, I'm very thankful that I'm that I was a ground guy. The older the older I get, like the less I like flying in a in tactical aircraft. I'm kind of glad that I was a uh, I was a ground guy. So it all, uh, in the end, it all, it all worked out. It's kind of, it's gotta be hard to move into pitching if you didn't get recruited for pitching at that level. But I can see that, you know, with the, with the monocular vision, like baseball's reacting to the ball off the bat or the pitch out of pitcher's hand. So if you want to be on, you know, one directional seeing, then you probably want to be pitching, right? Cause you got to pick up the catcher's glove and then just let it go. But yeah, uh, you're having to like develop, did you pitch in high school? Cause you're having to like develop pitches. You had to develop some off speed stuff in addition to just, you know, being accurate. Yeah. I pitched, I pitched my senior year of high school largely just cause I, I developed the arm strength at that point and then the velocity, but I wasn't, I, I wasn't like a natural, I wasn't a natural pitcher and I, I didn't get recruited to pitch to pitch anywhere. I got recruited to play playing field. Yeah. But um, in one way you say, well, you, you don't have to hit because that requires depth perception. But I tell you, when you release a baseball late, you know, I probably threw in the mid to upper, occasionally maybe the upper 80s, right? Like, so you turn around, the guy's got an aluminum bat. And this is like years before anybody was talking about exit velocity. And, you know, you're, you're playing against a, a pretty solid Division One team, but you let the ball go. Like, you're 50 feet from the batter's box. Like, that thing is on top of you. I mean, you, you don't even, it's like you don't even have time to react like survival mode yeah okay so in in terms of navigating after you get the injury so a few things happen baseball changes you're already strategizing about your future and what you want to do long term at the moment you are now figuring out a different branch that you want to do and can you take us through the end of the academy and then into finding what job you're actually going to do for your marine service before moving on to fire so your your first two years technically aren't obligated you can show up at, at these schools and uh annapolis west point air force academy and then at any point your first two years you decide this isn't for you or you want to go pursue different interests or transferred to another school, you walk away without, without an obligation. Your first day of your junior year, it, it begins. They, they effectively term it, or they refer to it as like the two for seven obligations. So you show up for your final two years of school, and then you owe additional five, at a minimum, 
five years. So I knew going back my junior year that once I started my embarked on my junior year, that they, they, they owned me and everyone that I was, I was speaking with about the likelihood of me getting a Marine Corps commission said, not, not, uh, not likely. Some folks said it's not even remotely likely. So that's kind of what propelled my desire to compete in the baseball field. But then I was looking at if I, if I was, if I was deemed to be non physical, not physically qualified, I was going to be looking at Navy supply, Navy medical school, which I had probably zero to no chance of, of qualifying for. So my, my options were really limited and I was very, very fortunate. Like your, your junior year going into your, at the end of your junior year, going into your senior year, the, those that are seriously uh, considering the Marine Corps go to Quantico for a pretty challenging couple of weeks. And um, there's kind of an evaluation process because in my graduating class, there were considerably more students that um, midshipmen that wanted to go to Marine Corps than they were going to be able, able to. So it was like, I had that going against me and then my, my physical uh, limitations, namely my eyesight. So I was fortunate and I had like a decent, a decent showing down in Quantico. And then I'm like, all right, I've yeah, at least done everything that I, I, I could do to make myself competitive. And I was so fortunate. Like I'll never forget the day that, uh, that I found out I was going Marine Corps. I was just absolutely elated. And then what happens is all of the ground guys go to Quantico for six months. If you graduate near the top of your class, you're almost guaranteed to what to get to do what you want. Mm-hmm. But the system that they use to determine that the spread in terms of MOS is, or, you know, specialties is it's called the, the thirds. It's like, um, if you have 300 guys in your class, guys and gals, then like one gets his choice. 101 gets his choice. 201 will get her choice. That's how they go down the, the list. So if you finish night, if you finish 99, like the guy or gal that does 101 is he's, he's going to do better than you are in terms of getting their choice. It's, it's got to leave some sour grapes, man. Yeah, yeah, it's bro. It's it's brutal. It's called the quality spread. I, I don't even know. Like you really couldn't game. You couldn't really game the system. So uh, you you watch some guys who are just elated, and then you watch other guys and gals who are just absolutely destroyed. And but when I got down there, I was kind of open minded, and it was it was two thousand, and there wasn't really much going on in terms of of combat. I mean, I was really excited about being a Marine. I, I didn't anticipate that I would make a career out of it. So I said, well, I really like the infantry aspect. Uh, but I'm like, you know what? Maybe there's some other things I could do, given that I, I really don't know how many rounds we're going to be putting on range in the next couple of years. Obviously, I was like many. Um, right. Yeah. 9-11 changed change that, the, the landscape of the world dramatically. But I was uh, I was fortunate I got my first choice, and I, I wound up being a common engineer officer, which I felt was somewhat of a hybrid between – the infantry because just a large part of their mission set is supporting the infantry. And then there's also a huge logistical and, and um, kind of technical component to it. So I thought I'd be introduced and exposed to things that would help me outside the Marine Corps. Nice. Yeah. We had a uh, Naval Academy grad Marine engineer officer, uh, Katie Neff. I think she also, she was like the honor grad at Sapper school. So she's a badass. but yeah, uh, she was, she was, you know, a few years after yourself yeah i i don't know personally i'm familiar with the, the name and and i had listened to some of her conversation with you and like she is a pioneer in the sense that like when i was commissioned and i went to engineer officer school like women were explicitly prohibited from serving in support of the infantry yeah. and then by the time i got to 
Afghanistan in 2009 and 10, when I, when, is it, when I was actually with a grunt unit, we had like a young female lieutenant attached to the unit. So today, you know, across all the services, not, not just the Marine Corps, but pretty much every occupational field is open to, uh, to females. And yeah. there's even women who have um, been commissioned and uh, graduated from the Marine Corps Infantry Officer School. Yeah, it's great. It's what she said she wanted to do, but uh, she actually didn't know at the time she couldn't, which I think is a great spirit. Uh, like, uh, <laughs> I didn't know I couldn't do that. Um, but she, yeah, she took the, she took the next best thing to her and uh, made the most out of it. So you recently graduated out of one of the service academies, uh, your Marine ground forces. And now you're like, all right, now there's a war we're going to have to fight. So how does that change your post school outlook as opposed yeah. to a lot of people we have on who are post nine 11, like if you join the military on September 10th, 2001, there's a whole different thing that you think you're getting into than the day after. Right. Yeah. I, I give, uh, I give the post nine 11 generation a tremendous amount of credit because I think the expectations coming in were, were much different. I mean, they, they joined at a time, like knowing we, we were at war, that wasn't the case for, you know, the folks that I had commissioned with or the folks who enlisted with during that, during that time. Like, I remember yeah. I just taken command of, a, of my first platoon, like September of 2001. And, uh, there's a couple of like moments that were like leadership epiphanies, you know, I even just as it related to my own responsibility to my Marines and, you know, to myself and to others. Um, yeah, it was, uh, it was kind of a surreal time because when you go to at the time, like, you know, I, I go into Annapolis in late nineties and I've obviously taken my education very seriously and I taken the lead, the military component of it even more seriously. And you, you, you kind of like raised on these stories of like McCain and Stockdale and the heroics of folks like Jim Webb, and like that generation of guys, like 30 years, 30 years removed from the Academy. I mean, they're like, they they were arguably older than my, than my father. It, it just felt so distant that you, you're, you're being prepared to navigate the sorts of dilemmas that they did and to lead men and women in harm's way in, in the fashion in which they did. It, it just feels, uh, it felt so it wasn't tangible. Like it was from a different generation or different. Like it really, it really, it's it like really, when you think about world war II, I don't think about world war II and relate it to like Baghdad in the two thousands. Right. It's like very different. Yeah. I mean, even like occasionally they did bring in a speaker and he would talk about his experiences in the Gulf, in the Gulf war in 91. And even that was several years removed. And it's not that it didn't feel relevant, it was kind of hard to wrap your, your head around it. And I'll, I'll never forget like driving home the morning of nine 11, or I'm sorry, the afternoon when I'm driving home to my apartment in Eastern North Carolina. And it was just kind of like that. Holy shit. You know, that moment of, of kind of vulnerability that we all experienced. And then I just remember like asking myself, like, are you, are you, are you ready? <laughs> and I didn't even know it's just like, and I, I didn't necessarily mean just, you know, physically or, uh, tactically or technically, like I knew I had all that covered, but it's like, am, am I really ready to lead Marines in, in combat in a very, very real 
way in a way that I kind of struggled to, to connect to um, because so much of, of our nation's military history and, and the Marine Corps history was, um, was removed, you know, by a number of years. So you talk about where you went, lessons you learned in leadership, I guess, from uh, getting to get in the mix early on in the war. Yeah. So I, uh, I had, I had to wait many years to, to get directly in, in, in the mix. I had to wait many years to, uh, to see the elephant per se. And it wasn't, it wasn't my choosing. It's just the way things played out. So in 2002, I take a, a small detachment of Marines to Cuba to get Mo, And we built the detention facilities for Al Qaeda and the Taliban. We're done there for several months. I mean, it was a pretty surreal mission pretty, pretty interesting. One of which there wasn't much in the way of precedent down there for several months. But we, we felt like we were contributing at this time. There were only a small number of Marines that were participated in small in, in, in relation to the number of Marines in the Marine Corps that have participated in the ground invasion in Afghanistan. So we, we come back and now we're getting ready for, we're actually going to go to Panama to do a humanitarian mission, like in a really remote austere region of, of Panama for the better part of six, seven months. And then we kind of get redirected and we go to uh, Kuwait to support the invasion. And because I was an engineer, there was a specific mission. The lead up to the invasion was obviously very logistically uh, heavy. I actually went over like December of two to offload all of the Marine Corps maritime pre-position equipment, which it's, it's incredible how much stuff comes off these, these boats. So we unload all of it, we move everything to Kuwait. And I, I anticipated that the unit I was with, that we would probably then go into Iraq and support the invasion. And then I discovered that actually I'm not going into Iraq. I'm going to stay on, you know, Kuwait and support the mission from a logistical perspective. So outside of like the occasional, scud round right that made its way to kuwait my first trip in support of the war in iraq was uh i wouldn't say it wasn't important but but it wasn't what i had anticipated or or trained for and i was you know the cliche rear in the rear with the gear pretty much captures the essence of of that deployment so now we come home we come home and now it's like this it's september of, of 2003 and for a brief period of, of time you know, think things in Iraq are kind of going according to, to plan in terms of the transition, the stability, and kind of the permissiveness of, of Baghdad and, and the country. And we look around and like, you gotta be kidding me. Like we, we missed, we missed the war. Like we were here, but we were, we were in the rear with the, uh, the gear. And now this is, this is it. This is how, and I actually a part of me really wishes that's how the story had ended. I mean, this is during the season when the commander in chief uses the, um, the mission accomplished banner accomplishment. I mean, I remember coming home and actually going to the local, the, the PX, the commissary and buying like my father and grandfather t-shirts that said mission accomplished and driving home yeah. to camp, camp was June to, to visit them and bringing in these mission accomplished. Of course, you know, I've been deployed for several months and it doesn't matter whether you're the leading edge of the battlefield or whether you're in the rear of the gear, like you're deployed. It doesn't really make much difference to your, to your family, particularly like your mother, your grandmother, stuff like that. So coming home and everyone's wearing these mission accomplished shirts. And here we're like, those of us, like I said, thought that that was, uh, that was it. Of course, you know, we, we, we'd, uh, we'd soon find out otherwise. Because our, 
our precedent was the first Gulf War, which is like a few days, right? Was it a hundred hours? Yeah, but it, it was. Um, so we didn't we didn't have any idea that it would be there until like 2011, and then go back a few years yeah, after. Yeah, the difference is we didn't. The difference is we didn't affect regime change. I mean, that's like if you look at President Bush's strategy, the elder Bush during the initial Gulf War, very very limited objective. I mean, it's more or less to um, to liberate Kuwait and and Saudi from territory that they technically owned very little objective and there were there were folks that made a case for him to do more and he's like no nah, we've, we've accomplished our objectives here and then obviously 2003 the objectives were far more involved and i i mean i i guess i mean i, I look back and now of course through the rearview mirror it's obviously the transition went very much sideways and and uh, a, a hellacious insurgency ensued but then what happens is my, my time in the Marine Corps is coming to an end and I have this opportunity to, to, to join the FDNY. So I, after I came back from Kuwait, you know, where we had supported the invasion, I went to a training command in, in Quantico and spent about 18 months there. And then I transitioned from there to the FDNY. And I get to New York when I started as a probie, in my mind, I was, you know, the, the Marine Corps phase of my life was, was largely over. And then after a week or two, I'm like, you know what? I might miss being around Marines. And then I get my first paycheck and it was, uh, it was pretty humbling. I'm trying to figure out and just see when I can cover my basic expenses. I'm like, I'm living in the, uh, you know, a walkout basement of a, of a, of a private house in like the Bronx. And I, I you know, I just going from being a, a, a captain living in the Northern Virginia DC area, uh, living pretty comfortably. I mean, of course, working hard, but living pretty comfortably to being a probationary firefighter, probably in the New York City Fire Department, just trying to figure out how I'm going to even cover my expenses, which were pretty, were, were pretty modest. So I was like, you know what? They were actually, the Marine Corps really needed reserve officers. And uh, they were offering like a $3,000 bonus for like a year of service. I had already, I, and at that point, I'm like, you know what? Like, going to drill like one, one week a month, that should be pretty cool. I'll still be, I'll still be around Marines. I didn't know anything about the reserve component. In fact, when you're in active duty, no, no one tells you about it because most of the active duty guys don't really know anything about it. And then honestly, there's uh, and I, I can understand why the sentiment exists, but there's a, there, there's a considerable component of active duty Marines that look, look at reservists a little differently than they look at the active duty component, particularly pre nine 11. So I joined the local infantry battalion for really those two reasons. And at the time I had no idea that I would find myself in Iraq as, as quickly as I did, but, uh, but I, but I did. Yeah. Well, I mean, citizen soldiers are who won this country. It's freedom. So I just can always tell, tell people that there are a few things that I want to get into from that exchange. So first, why New York? You're uh, you're uh, you know, outside Baltimore kid. Why FDNY? Was it something about 9-11? Was it something about working in like the most elite fire department in the world? Yeah, it's it's both of those things. So my my father, I, I label him a quiet professional. Like he he took a tremendous amount of interest in his profession. He he loved it. Um, but to his credit, when he was home, he was really always focused on, well, he, he wasn't always even home that much, largely because if he wasn't working at the firehouse, he was a carpenter on the side, 
Um, my mom was a stay-at-home mom, so my, my dad worked uh, worked incredibly hard to support our family. But when he was home, my, my sister and I were kind of like his his focus, and um, he didn't really wear the whole the whole fire department thing on his on his sleeve. He didn't really talk about it that much. Occasionally, if I asked him about it, he would he would talk about it, but he, he was pretty quiet about it. But as a young kid, a couple of things happened. We would come to the city from time to time and and, and visit. And occasionally it'd stop by a firehouse and we'd go in and, and, uh, you know, I, I felt, you know, walking into a city firehouse was just like walking into a firehouse in Baltimore is like equally, equally cool. But I, I just kind of picked up on the fact that my father like held these guys in really, really high regard. So like if my father holds these guys in high regard, you know, there's gotta be something special about these guys. And when I was, I was probably like 10 or 11 years old, uh, my father had a library at home, you know, different books military history, a couple of books about the fire department. He had this book called Report from Engine Company 82. And it was written late 60s, early 70s in the South Bronx. And it was about the uh, inordinate fire duty that those guys saw during what the FDNY terms the war years at a time when there was just a mass exodus from the city to the suburbs. Crime was off the charts. The deficit was extraordinary. They were very much hopeful to get to get a bailout from the federal government. And, um, the city was just chaotic. I mean, it, it was it was an insurgency in its, in its own way. So then I, I remember asking my father about it. And he's like, yeah, those, those guys in the South Bronx, he's like, parts of Brooklyn, he said, these guys go to a tremendous number of flyers. And then that was it, man. I, I mean, I at that point in time, I knew I wanted to be a New York City firefighter. I knew, I mean, as crazy as it sounds, I knew I wanted to be a Bronx firefighter. Uh, I wasn't even probably 11 years old. You know, this is, of course, all, you know, I went to like grammar school and high school, all pre-internet, but I would just, anything I could get my hands on and read about the FDNY, I, I did, even when I got to the Naval Academy, it was just like a, uh, a leisurely interest just to learn more about New York, specifically the FDNY. And then part of me, like, I mean, there's, there's a lot of really great fire departments out there, Baltimore City, Baltimore County, like really, really solid fire departments, but uh, just the, the, the scope size and, and scale of the city uh, and just the complexity of, of New York city. It's like, you know, there's, there's no place like it. So I, I used to tease my, I used to tease my father. He's like a diehard Baltimore Orioles fan. I used to tease him, uh, you know, why, why play for the Orioles when you can play for the, uh, for the Yankees. Um, that was kind of a cliche. Of course he, he didn't necessarily always appreciate that, but, but what's cool is my, my father, uh, it wasn't that he discouraged me from being a, a firefighter, uh, nor did my grandfather. I, I just wouldn't say they, they just didn't actively encourage it. But once they saw how passionate I was about it and how serious I was about it, they certainly supported me. And I, I think both of them getting, getting to watch me kind of accomplish my, live out my dream of actually coming here, getting to work in the firehouses that I have and kind of building a life here and building a family here. My whole life is here now. So I, I think that they're incredibly uh, proud so it's, uh, it's been awesome, man. Hey, everyone. Just one break in the action today. It's the end of the year, and we wanted to just give an extra thank you to everybody who has supported the show by listening, by reviewing, and by spreading the word to others. For those of you who've contributed in more tangible ways, Ben and I are committing to giving at least half the money the show has raised away to charity. Please know that any money we do spend goes strictly to expenses and never in our pockets. You can always find ways to contribute by visiting our website at thankyounowwhat.com and looking for our PayPal or Patreon links. 
If you're one of our beloved Patreon members, we are going to be releasing a Patreon-only bonus episode this week where Ben and I spend about 30 minutes taking you behind the scenes of the show, one of many bonus episodes to come. So if you're on Patreon, you're going to get a little more on your plate. Everybody else, we encourage you to engage with us on social media or through the website or by emailing us directly at thankyounowwhat at gmail.com. Thanks, and let's get back to the show. Another thing I want to touch on is that you said you went from being a captain of the Marines to being a probie in the fire department. So aside from just looking at your first paycheck, like what the hell happened, what else is there behind that cultural shift? Because in the fire department, everyone starts out at the same level, right? Yeah, it, it would be comparable to a military where every commissioned officer had, had originally initially enlisted. Yeah. And all the while, you're kind of living this, when you're in the reserves, you're an officer, you are in command, you're assigned a platoon company, whatever. And then when you're in the department, you're working your way up as comparable to like an enlisted person, uh, probie, firefighter. I, I can only imagine just going from one environment to the other and back and forth is that, uh, disorienting is not the word, but it's very different. Right. And you're going back and forth. Yeah. And I, I also joke, you know, on one, on one day I was, uh, I was a captain. I was the executive officer for a training company, arguably in charge of like 300 plus Marines. And the next day I'm, I'm standing in formation, uh, with a freshly shaved head as a probationary firefighter, you know, at Randall's Island, New York getting yelled at. So, when I go to the probationary fire school, of course, this is something I've, I've dreamed of doing since I was a young, a, a young kid. And yeah. it, it made the transition rather easy just cause like at the end of the day, man, I, I would have probably, the union probably wouldn't like me saying this, but I would have probably paid for the experience. It was, it was so incredible. So I'm standing in formation and it's, there's like a snowstorm and they have us outside and they're like, they have us doing push-ups and, and burpees. And the first day you have to go in a coat and tie because you don't have uniforms. And a lot of these guys, a lot of these guys have never been in the military. So this is like their first exposure to, to paramilitary. All of the drill instructors, the, the fire drill instructors are former Marines. So they're, they're pretty intense guys. So then they have to identify who the squad leaders are. There's like 300 guys in my probie class. They instruct everyone who's, who's prior military to fall out. So we fall out. You know, they want to establish their own hierarchy. So they want to see like largely who the ground guys were, namely in the Marine Corps and, and Army, right? And then like they're like, okay, so we want to appoint all Marines as squad leaders. And then they look at the the Coasties and the and the air guy, you know, the airmen, and they're like, all right, so if we run out of these guys, then you guys will be squad leaders too. <laughs> so then they go down, they go down the, the the line and they're like, all right, so we need to know what what rank you were and what your what your occupational specialty was. So they get to me and uh drill instructor, pretty intense dude. He gets to me and he says, you know, identify yourself. So I tell him who I am. And he's like, what rank were you in the Marine Corps? So I'm thinking most of these guys are probably enlisted. There's no way I'm telling this guy I'm an, I'm an officer. So I'm like, sir, I was a Marine. He's like, yeah, thanks for that. You know, what, what rank were you? I said, sir, I was a Marine. He goes, maybe you don't understand the question. So finally, you know, back and forth enough. So I'm like, I just quietly whisper, sir, I was, I was a captain. And we're in an auditorium and there's like 300 probies in the, in the back of it. And this guy just lets, let's, let's this roar out. Holy, you know, a few explicit, uh, you know, words I won't repeat. We've, 
We've been blessed to have a Marine Corps captain in our presence, ladies and gentlemen. Sir, as much as it pains me, I'm actually going to make you a squad leader. You know, as it pains me to to give an officer uh, a, a working man's uh, billet, you know. So anyway, of course, the next three months they proceed to like crush me every, every day, but in like a largely, largely good way. So yeah, it was uh, you know I go to drill weekend. And of course, you know you're, you're kind of in charge or kind of you you are in charge, and then you come into the firehouse and your first year in the FDNY, it's 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 really special. It's in in an odd and in, in oftentimes humbling way. You know, you're a pro B and it's in many ways, it's reminiscent of being a plebe. You have limited rights, you know, far more responsibilities than you do rights. And you kind of earn your rights back, you know, a week or, or a month at a, at a time. And uh, they're just molding you, you know, to really understand not just what your responsibilities are tactically, but, but culturally, what, what does it mean to be a New York City fireman? What does it mean to do the right thing? How do we mourn our, our fallen? Much like the military, the advantage that you have in, in terms of molding a group of, of men and women to kind of fit culturally is that, you know, most guys and gals are, are still relatively young in life. It's not like you're, you're having to condition a 42-year-old man, you know, where it's coming from a guy who's 10 or 15, 20 years younger than me. Guys don't necessarily walk around sharing this, but anybody who's been a part of it, just like the military, like you just recognize in that moment sometimes that it, it's significant and that, this, this mission, this organization, this unit, you know, this te team that you're a part of is, is far bigger than, than yourself. And it's even more special and unique than you even knew and getting to see behind the curtain was pretty spectacular. Cause I feel like sometimes in life, there's things that we put on a pedestal. Um, I know I'm guilty of this. You, you put something on a pedestal and you think that it's I ideal and it represents like the, the best of who we are. And then sometimes you see behind the curtain and you're just like, you don't want to be disillusioned or jaded, but you're like that. That's not nearly as spectacular or special as I thought it was. And I can honestly say, and it, look, at the end of the day, FDNY is much like the Marine Corps. Um, you know, it, it has its moments, but overall, the, the organization from top to bottom is uh, even better than, than I had even imagined and anticipated. And, you know, this is coming from a guy who's dreamed of being a part of this thing since I was, since I was school-aged. I've only lived in New York for like five or six years, but... I appreciate it so much more than I could without having lived here. Just looking at the size of the city, the density, like the different kind of issues that you guys have to deal with, even just down to different kind of buildings. I mean, the fire is obviously a big piece of it, but only a piece of it. I mean, not to mention all of the, the water rescues and emergencies. I mean, I don't know how many people a year get stuck in elevators in New York city, but it's well into the, into the thousands subways yeah there's uh far more people end up under uh, a subway train each year than you ever could even guess the occasional uh inclement weather hurricanes pandemics you know you, you name it like the organization like is just conditioned to, to do it all even in instances where there's really no precedent you know like even some of these like really novel events this year being case in point you, you go from yeah. the pandemic right into the uh the civil unrest and neither are entirely novel. Like there, there's precedent for both, but you'd have to go back many, many mm -hmm. decades for, for both types of events. I think it really speaks to the quality and character of, of the leaders in the FDNY, not just, not just in the formal sense, you know, the officers, but, but also the, uh, the firefighters. And what's, what's particularly unique about the, the fire service in contrast to the military. And sometimes folks will ask me like, Oh, what's, what's the biggest difference 
the biggest difference is in terms of leadership is um, it's not a move up or move out concept. So in the Marine Corps, yeah, as in every service, like enlisted or officer, if you're not advancing in rank, you know, you reach a rank that's terminal, there's a limit to the number of years you can spend in that rank. That's not the case for the New York City Fire Department or most fire departments for that matter. There are firefighters that I worked with that are, are firefighters. They'll never promote and they'll spend 30 to 40, 40 years in that rank, possibly even in the same firehouse. I know they might not have a great deal in the way of like formal authority. They have a tremendous amount of, of influence. I mean, the guy, it'd be like having a gunny in the Marine Corps who has 40 years, yeah. right? There are no gunnies in the Marine Corps that have anything probably north of 20 years. Cause if you're, you know, you're not picking up first sergeant, or master sergeant, you have to leave the organization. So you have oftentimes what happens is I think it, I think that that, that dynamic actually really helps to keep senior leaders in check. Cause in many instances, you'll have senior leaders who are obviously superior in rank to virtually everyone, but a lot of their peer group didn't promote, right? So they see them event events from time to time. And that individual will pay, you know, will pay the chief. He'll, he'll pay respect as appropriate. At the end of the day, these guys came on together. They're raising their kids yeah. in the same neighborhood. They can have candid conversations that sometimes they, I think don't, don't happen in the military to the extent that they do. And like, because everyone at one point came up through the ranks, like guys never forgot where they came from. And I, I totally understand why the fraternization standard is largely what it is in the military, particularly on the kind of the conventional side of the house. I, I totally get it. But I feel like sometimes like some of the officers I served with or served under, they were isolated, man. I mean, they were really isolated from reality. And not only had they not come up through the ranks, had they never been enlisted, which that, that just uh, wasn't required of them, right? So you can't hold that against them. But it was like they were isolated in a sense that they didn't really understand what that perspective looked like or felt like, largely because they really hadn't just taken the time to listen. You don't really see that. In the, in the firehouse, the men cook the meals and the chief eats at the table and Sometimes, uh, you know, there's certain, there's certain conversations that, that can be had in that environment. So I think like that level of, of familiarity sometimes is to the organization's um, benefit. I can tell you at the, as an enlisted or a, a former enlisted person, when you know that an officer is former enlisted, I think they get a little bit of a leg up or there's a little more hope that this person is going to be more relatable. This person's going to be more open to feedback and, I think that there's a real appreciation of that, even though it's, I won't say it's very rare, but it's certainly not the norm. So when, when we're talking about the decision to become an officer as a firefighter, and first, I just want to mention, you have a couple academic degrees in fire, including a master's, right? I don't even know if people know that that's a thing, but uh, uh, it's, it's really, uh, it's, it's really a, a graduate degree in public policy just oh, geared okay. towards geared towards emergency mm -hmm. crisis management in kind of a public safety context. Uh, it has nothing to do with the tactics of firefighting nor, nor should it. What about an um, undergrad, undergrad degree in fire? You know, there, there's like undergraduate degrees in like fire protection. A lot of them are kind of focused on fire suppression and fire protection systems, codes, mm. regulations, the only way to really learn how to fight fire is by, by doing it right? or by working with those guys that, that have done it. Yeah. There's really no, uh, I mean, there's like, there's fire science curriculum out there that, that exists, 
I would argue most of it has very little to do with actually like the, the tactical application or delivery of firefighting. It's like getting a degree in healthcare management and then uh, having show, someone show up missing an arm. Like, I studied healthcare management. Yeah. And the, the odd thing is like a lot of fire departments, I, I mean, maybe not odd. It, it, it makes sense until you really understand the profession. A lot of fire departments now require that their officer cadre, that in order to be an officer, particularly a chief, you have to have a, a bachelor's degree. And a lot of departments mandate that the degree has to be in discipline specific to fire science. And then what ends up happening is you end up with just like, I think you'd be better off to have guys going off and getting degrees in like totally different academic disciplines. I think you'd have yeah. a much more diverse, diverse workforce. But right. at, the, at the end of the day, I'd say firefighting is, is, is a, it's a profession, but I'd say it's probably, it's, it's more of like a, of a vocation that, than anything. Yeah. So back to the question that I, I guess, walked all over, what goes into the decision of becoming an officer as a firefighter? Yeah. You, um, you kind of at the mercy of the civil service process and, and it's, uh, it's scheduled. So I think in the New York city fire department, you have to have a couple of years on the job to, to sit for the lieutenant's exam. And the lieutenant's exam is given once every four, sometimes five, occasionally six years. It's a hundred questions, multiple choice. That's it. That determines who gets promoted as well as you get points for, for seniority or time in each rank. So you spend years studying volumes and volumes of procedures and department regulations and policies and operational bulletins and uh, largely rote memorization. Right. And then you, you walk into a New York city high school, having spent devoted tears of your life to studying for the lieutenant's test. You, you take the test and then depending upon where you end up on the list determines when, whether or not, you know, you get promoted and when you get promoted, I guess more to the point of the question, what drives that decision? I think that's it's largely an individual one, similar to the Marine Corps, like, or the military, we've all been units where in units where we had a leader that we really admired and sought to emulate and trusted and felt like, you know, he, he helped our unit to be a, a better version of ourselves, and he helped us, you know, us individually to be better versions of ourselves. And then we've all had instances where we worked for a leader who was anything but that. I was fortunate enough to work in really great units where I'm looking at the leaders I'm working for who have like several decades of service and they're encouraging me to become an officer. And I'm looking at them being like, I have a fraction of the experience that these guys have, particularly early in my career. I mean, in, in the FDNY, your pedigree where you worked, your reputation for how you, how you function at fires and emergencies is like everything. And one of the other reasons that I really, that I love being a, a New York city firefighter is because professionally, like no one cares where you went to school, whether you come from money or not. No one cares like how many languages you speak. No one cares if like you backpacked in Europe, like no, like those things are all ventures, but like no one cares your gender, your, your religion, your socioeconomic, no one cares. All they care about is at like three o'clock in the morning when the tones go off and you're going out the door for a reported fire with people trapped. Are you capable? Do you have what it takes to make an impact? And more broadly, like, are you the, are the person who consistently does like the right thing, you know, for others and everything else, man, everything else is, uh, is just details. But these guys, uh, a lot of leaders that I worked for, the lieutenants, the captains, the chiefs, they encouraged me. That was a, that was a big piece, you know, a big part of it. 
I, th- I think people assume that because I had, you know, been a field grade officer or was a field grade officer in the Marine Corps that I would want to ascend the ranks quickly. I used to say I wanted to do five years in the firefighters rank, 10 years in the company officers rank, 10 years in the chiefs rank. And I, I kind of missed that mark. And I'm going to probably, you know, 15 years in the firefighters rank. I'd like to do another, you know, t- 20 years, I- ideally. God willing. So we'll see. I, I uh, now, now I'm kind of at just the mercy of like, I'm a Lieutenant studying for captain. The test was supposed to be last year. It might be this year. could be next year. Yeah. Kind of at the mercy of this, the civil service schedule. But also, unlike the military, because you have a little bit more latitude and because you're, you're not, because you don't necessarily comply with the move up or move out standard, you know, sometimes you go through a season of life where there's other things that, ha- that are important. You know, maybe you have some, a, a situation at home or maybe you're in a particular season of life where you're, you're coaching your kids, kids' sports teams and, and that's a huge passion and, and maybe – studying for promotional process during that season of life takes, uh, you know, kind of takes a, takes a backseat. It's kind of funny. It's, uh, it's a little more accommodating all while being a very life threatening job. Yeah. The job is real. You know, it gets, it, like they say, it gets, uh, it, it gets real fast. And then sometimes I, I, in some ways similar to combat, like sometimes you, you execute these missions that, when you step off and you cross the line of departure, you, you think things are going to be pretty, uh, pretty straightforward. And you don't think you're assuming a great deal of risk. And then when you get to the objective, like something changes dramatically, right? There's like one piece of information that you didn't have that was critical, or maybe a resource that you're relying on kind of falls off. And then, you know, you find yourself, uh, navigating more risk than you anticipated. And then other times you go on these missions that you're like certain that are going to be, incredibly kinetic and then you get there and they're like anything but kinetic and quite anticlimactic the, the bells go off you get on the rig sometimes with very little information you pull up to an intersection and it, it could be a, a garbage can burning somebody was really excited about in, in the 911 dispatcher had 10 people calling them and saying there was a building on fire it was nothing more than a garbage can you could pull up and have gotten you know one one call somebody reporting uh smoke in the area and you pull up and you have like a fully involved church that's 200 years old you're like you never know man yeah, that was like a week ago right and it was like, right across the street from uh like what was that like three years ago at second ave and seventh uh that other building came down yeah the gas explosion i worked in alphabet city last night on the lower east side and we had several runs along first avenue second avenue in fact we had a run this morning a woman was reporting smoke from uh, a roof of a building like a block away from where the, the fire was last week I was telling the guys, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it was like six o'clock this morning. And it was, it was just smoke from like an oil burner. But I said, I, I said to the fellas, I'm sure that she's uh, a little bit more vigilant given the, uh, the fire last week. But yeah, both of those events, the, uh, the gas explosion on second Avenue, which leveled a, a building and claimed several lives of, of civilians was like a block away from this fire. Uh, pretty epic fire last week that ended up um, destroying the church that dates back to like the late 1800s and the congregation actually is, has been active since like the late 1400s. That's wild. 128 year old Gothic style church in the East village. Yeah. I, I didn't have it. I, I was off that night. If you watch the video or you look at the pictures, it looks like something out of a, uh, something out of a movie. Yeah. I'm watching, I have it pulled up in the other way. I'm watching it right now. It's insane. It's like fully ablaze just street littered with, uh, with fire trucks. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. 
Okay, so you, so by nature of firefighting and the shift and and stuff, you can actually firefighting lends itself to be a little bit entrepreneurial, I believe, right? And you teach some of this stuff on the side about leadership and mindset and uh, dealing with stress and and acting under fire, right? Yeah, I do. I mean, at the time, I, I didn't know it was going to be a leadership development or more accurately, like a human performance optimization company when mm-hmm. we started started out. But um, when I came back from Iraq in 2006 and seven, having, having led Marines during the, the insurgency, kind of at the height of the insurgency in, in Fallujah, I come back and I transitioned back to the, to the firehouse. And the transition was challenging, not in the sense that the guys weren't really supportive. And they, I mean, they welcomed me back open arms I was really excited to be back, but then I, I quickly found myself kind of missing Fallujah, which at the time I, I, I couldn't make sense of. So one of my Marines who uh, had been instrumental during that deployment, really unique individual in the sense that he enlisted in the Marine Corps, despite having college education, enlisted at 34 or 35. Uh, he was a corporal on this particular tour. We, we had gotten to do some really interesting things, challenging in terms of brokering deals with the, with some of the tribes in Iraq, uh, in Fallujah that had been adversarial. And then we were able to kind of flip them really interesting work and things that I had never been trained to do, never expected I would be doing the Marine Corps and, and certainly not, not conventional. And none of them had anything to do with my, uh, you know, engineering skill set. So we had this uh, mentor on this particular deployment, probably the greatest mentor I, I've, I've ever had, certainly in the military, and he's a chief officer, five Chicago police officer, 30 plus years as, as a detective anti-gang cop on the south side, west side of Chicago. He's no junior to me in, in rank, but, but far more senior to me in experience and wisdom. He kind of took me under his wing in, in Fallujah and helped me to, to navigate th- this insurgency. And when we came back from the deployment, I had learned so much from this particular gentleman and so much of it was just entirely counterintuitive. Like left to my own devices, I would have I would have punted opportunities that we had in Fallujah into the into the stands, and it's just because I just didn't understand the nuances of the insurgency, right? And like a lot of my even like a lot of the the risk management models that I had adopted tactically held very little water down downrange. So we come back from our deployment, we're trying to make sense of things. And now I'm back in the firehouse and I'm just trying to go to fires and emergencies on a, on a frequent basis and be the best version of myself there. And um, I'm looking around and now for the first time, it really just hits me like how similar firefighting and combat is. Not so much the tactics or the techniques or the equipment, but really the, the human dimension kind of the, the, the physiological, the psychological, like the moral forces. That, response that, uh, to stress or thinking yeah, under absolutely. the clock or absolutely, Absolutely. Yeah. You know, making decisions with limited information, time constraints, resource constraints. So I, when I looked around at how we train firefighters in not only in New York, firefighters and officers, but also in departments elsewhere, I, I, I kind of saw like a glaring deficiency. Right. We spend so much time talking about tactics and techniques and giving guys kind of the physical and technical skills to be successful, but very little in the way of, of kind of human centric leadership development. So myself and a couple of my, of my Marines, we uh, made this pledge that we were going to start this concept called leadership under fire, really having no idea what it would, what it would look like 
who it would impact and the time, you know, I had like three years in the New four years in the New York city fire department. I, you know, I'm like too, too junior for anyone to really listen to anything I had to, had to say, regardless of how, you know, meaningful it, it, it might be. Uh, then I'm going to, to Afghanistan and I came back and we just continued to kind of build off this, this model, this leadership under fire model and made formed a lot of partnerships and relationships with, um, I guess more accurately relationships with people in pro sport that were kind of like at the cutting edge, kind of at the vanguard and in, in, in bringing in a greater appreciation for human performance into, into sport. So over time, we were just able to kind of build up a, a, a team of advisors, some from sports, some, some from military, some from the fire service and a few here and there from academia who kind of support what it is we're trying to do with, with empiricism we've got to work with a lot of fire departments as well as some police departments. We've had a lot of fun. I mean, everyone who's involved in the effort has a full-time job. So it's kind of a collateral duty for, for all of us, but we always feel like going to work and doing what we do at work kind of makes us, keeps us um, relevant for leadership under fire. And then everything that we do with leadership under fire helps each of us to kind of develop and maintain a competitive edge at work. Yeah. Do you branch out into like non-fire, non-military? We have over time, we've gotten to work with a few corporations here and there. Most of our clientele tends to be public government. We've gotten to do some work with different military organizations. In 2020, we got to work with doctors or fourth year medical students because they recognized early in the pandemic that one is their education was going to be accelerated and they were going to probably find themselves on the front lines sooner than anticipated. Now they're putting themselves at risk where Typically doctors, you know, when they're going to work, it's not like a decision and like by treating a patient, they're now putting themselves at risk, right? So kind of like their relationship with risk changed and there was a, a physical, psychological, physiological, moral component to delivering care during the pandemic that um, is certainly above and beyond what they're typically accustomed to. Cool. You guys have your own podcast too. I uh, dropped in for a listen, but then I found out that you don't host it. You have a, you have a host. <laughs> I'm fortunate in that I don't host it. I'm really glad that we have one. I kind of resisted. And then what would happen is we would have these conferences and summits and then you know, different speakers. And then on the back end, somebody would be like, Hey, I really wish I could listen to that. I was too busy taking notes or, Hey, I really wanted to come to that event, but I had an issue at home. Yeah. And then one of our principal mentors actually passed away after a very tough battle with, with cancer. We realized we, we weren't going to have him anymore. And in retrospect, I'm like, damn it. I wish we would have archived more of the conversations that, w- that we had. And so about two years ago, we made a decision to launch the podcast. It's focused on human performance, kind of in like ultra competitive, high risk settings, as well as the yeah. leadership, leadership component. But we were fortunate enough to have a, a young lady who's super capable very well versed on what it is we're, we're seeking to explore to host it. And then we have a co-host or a kind of a featured guest host from, from time to time. So other than doing the, really the, the year in review conversations contributing occasionally, I, I largely am fortunate. I just get to like enjoy the final product, but yeah. I'm not, I, uh, fortunately I'm, I'm not involved with the production, which is a good thing because the, the technical piece is not certainly not my forte. Yeah. Segregation of duties. That's why I, I don't get to, uh, I don't put my hand on the mixer. That's all Ben for, uh, for the, for the two of us. Ben's going to have his work cut off for him on the back end yeah. today with the, uh, yeah, the, the intermittent circular saw on the angle grinder. 
Yeah, exactly. All right. So I guess kind of wrapping it up here. So Naval Academy, Marines, taking making a pivot very early on when you're kind of dealt a shitty hand with your injury and making the best out of it, fulfilling like a lifelong dream of being an FDNY firefighter, going to 15 years on the job, all the while staying in the Marines still on the side as a reservist. So we asked this to have everyone. So you want to tell me who are you today? If you never served? Uh, yeah. I'm still I, a firefighter. I, I, I think so. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm probably, I'm probably not a New York city firefighter. I mean, I, I'm sure that I'm, wherever I'm working, I'm a firefighter who loves being a firefighter, but I, I don't, I don't think I get here. There's no leadership under fire. Uh, that, yeah. that I'm, that I'm certain of, I'm, I'm probably still a firefighter. There's no leadership under fire. And I don't have, I don't have the relationships. I mean, most importantly, I, I don't have the relationships that I, um, that, uh, are, are so important to me. You know, I'm certainly not on this, certainly not on this podcast, you know, like, well, I mean, only few can climb to such heights <laughs> and, and, and I never get to, and I would have never gotten to work with Steve Marley. Right. So exactly. He's uh, like our new booking producer. <laughs> I love how like the, the guests are starting to reference him. So eventually you have to bring him on the show, Matt. We will. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on. You know, I appreciate we're recording the week before Christmas. I'm sure you have family time short notice too. Well, no, we, we talked back in like, uh, November, but we just had to work out the scheduling, right? Yeah, we did. No, I, I'm honored to, uh, to contribute. And this is, um, this is important. Like these conversations, I've, I listened to several of them. I listened to one or two uh, last night and one or two this morning. Wow. I was listening to Marley's buddy the other day. That was, uh, that was an interest. That was an interesting conversation. Chase, man, he's wild. He's getting some, he's getting uh, he's getting some good reviews. I think that's the most authentic we, uh, conversation we've had so far. But uh, yeah, he's hilarious ways, too. In some ways, I'm like, and I'm not. I'm just not right. And I'm like, how do I follow? I'm like, how, <laughs> how do I follow? Chase is a tough act to follow, time, man. He's uh, he's incredibly skilled at talking about serious matters while injecting uh humor and being very personal about it and and like walking that very fine line to where you know you're, you're kind of learning through his eyes but you're laughing your ass off at the same yeah. time right he's talking about like losing a limb or you know and, and and he's got you he's talking about thinking he's gonna die bleeding out in a humvee but you're like laughing your ass off because he said he's got like boxes of cereal falling on him right painting that picture like we all get the uh you know the box of mres where the where the cheese spread is just flying out but uh <laughs> yeah, he was great i mean yeah he's a great guest but everyone we talk to on the show we love having on because one of our original goals with the show was to, I guess, have authentic conversations, but put on display just how diverse our population is of veterans and, and show people, I guess, in a real light, even for people who aren't really in our community. Like Ben is in the filmmaking industry. We met at grad school. You know, he knows some people in the military, but he's not really close to the culture of the community or anything. And, and, over the past uh, seven months or so, like he's been learning a ton just producing the show. And we talk in the off time too and everything. And, and 
he gives me all those pointers and tips from the outside view. And then it's up to me to, I guess, navigate our world on the show. So, yeah. I think we're recording a bonus episode about starting it up and what we've seen so far and kind of our journey from zero to one and now 16 episodes later. Yeah, man. I'll keep listening to your show too. Your host, she does a really good job. Yeah, she's great. We're, we're blessed yeah. to have her. Yeah, great. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. Be on the lookout for Jason and his team keeping one of the craziest cities in the world a safer place. Please subscribe, rate, review, follow, and join us next time on Thank You Now What. Thank you.